0: Lord, we are thankful that we can come to this text, Lord, that you have breathed out for us. And, Lord, because of that, you want us to uh, to marinate in it, to seek, to understand, Lord, how it directs how we live and how we are to find strength, Lord, to um, be your children in this present age. And So, Lord, allow our time together to be profitable. May our hearts, Lord, be receptive to your truth. May our minds, Lord, be willing to be taught and, and strengthened and encouraged. And Lord, would you be glorified? Allow me as your messenger, Lord, to reflect the truth of this text. And Lord, if there is something that I say that is an error, we ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would make that very clear and that, uh, Lord, you would bring clarity, Lord, where there is confusion. We ask now for your help in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, we've all seen pictures of him. Um, Maybe we have encountered him, and um, he is the object of the world's ridicule, and sometimes he is the object of the church's ridicule. And I'm talking about that man that you see sometimes in a downtown city area who's walking around with long hair and a beard and a robe and a sandwich board, and on it it says, repent! The end is near. You've seen him before? Maybe you have. But the question is this. Is the end near? Can I know that the end is near? And so what if the end is near? Now I want to just take a moment to to think through Uh, Mark chapter 13, briefly, just from a structure perspective. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 4, which kind of provide for us an introduction where the questions are asked by the disciples about when is the destruction of the temple going to take place and what is going to happen in the future. The rest of the chapter, Jesus is going to answer that question by not specifically answering that question right, right away, but Verses 5 through 23 is what we're looking at today, is the section where he deals about and answers the question relating to the destruction of the temple, but primarily it's a discussion about the last days, the characteristics of the last days, and that's where we're going to spend our time. Next week, the focus is going to be on the Lord's return and then some questions that he gives or some, some illustrations that he gives about helping us understand what those questions are. So if you look at your text here today, you'll notice in verse 5, it begins with this word, see. It's the Greek word bleppo. And it literally means, do not be deceived. And you'll notice that right next to it, there is this theme about false Christs. People who come to say, I am he. Then you know down in verse 23, it says, be on your guard. It's actually the same Greek word. Okay, and it literally again means, don't be deceived. And it's there along with this theme of false Christ. So what you have here in this text are, are some bookends to help us know that, that this is talking about one unit. These things are going to take place in this one unit of time. And so we often talk about the last days. Some people view the last days as kind of like the end of the last days. Some events are going to take place at the end. But when, when the word last days is used, it's talking about that time from the, the, the descent of Christ, his ascent into heaven, to his return And so all of us right now are living in the last days. The disciples, when they went out into mission after Jesus left, were in the last days. And since then, until now, until the Lord returns, it is all called the last days. So the descriptions that Jesus gives us here are the characteristics of these last days and they are also viewed here or or the term that is used here is that they're called birth pains. These are things, these are characteristics, these are events that will take place in the last days. There isn't necessarily a chronology going on here. It's not like this is going to happen first and this and this and this. These are all characteristics that are characteristics that are happening along uh, in in those last days. There is one particular characteristic, however, that is a severe pain in that process, and we'll see that. And ultimately there, Jesus is answering the question that the disciples have about the destruction of the temple. So this morning, I want us to consider this chapter from this perspective. Rather than be deceived by the turbulent characteristics of the last days, trust the warnings, counsel, and guidance of Jesus, the true prophet. Jesus is going to give us characteristics so we can see and we can identify what the last days looks like. But along with those characteristics, he gives us counsel and direction about how we as believers are to respond and to behave and to live in those last days. So what we have here then are the characteristics of the last days. And I have four general categories but within those categories, there are some other specific characteristics. And so we probably have about, oh, nine or ten characteristics of these last days. So let's begin. The first general characteristic is this: the general worldwide instability. Let's read verses five through eight again. And Jesus began to say to them, "See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, "I am He." And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. So the first area then that we want to look at here is the This this arena of instability taking place in three areas. First of all, there's false teaching. There's false teaching. People are coming, and they're claiming to be Messiah. They're claiming to be the answer. Now, the Messiah can be specifically referring to the Messiah of Judaism, but it could also be someone who's coming to say, I am the answer for man. And so there might be a great leader that rises up, and, and everyone's looking to, to him to be the Savior, not necessarily localized there in Jerusalem, but during the course of these last days, there will be some that rise up. But in particular, let's think through this, first of all, about those who came. There was one particular person who came before Christ, where people identified him as the Messiah, and his name is Judas Maccabeus. He led a successful revolt against Antiochus. Um, Epiphanes' uh, empire, um, and Antiochus came in, and he desecrated the temple and dominated Judea. And he, Judas Maccabeus, came in and restored Israel um, to uh, and, and basically pushed out that, that regime. And so he was considered by the people to be a messiah. But near or around the time of Christ, Flavius Josephus, the Jewish historian, records that there were many after the time of Christ who led people astray, claiming that they were the Messiah. So I'm just going to give you a couple just to kind of give you a sense. There was an unnamed Samaritan prophet in 36 AD, which would have been just a couple years after Jesus' departure. Um, He led a serious revolt in in Samaria. Samaria. Thudius in 45 led a revolt against Rome, claiming to be the Messiah. He, along with all those who followed him, about 400 men, died. We have that recorded for us in Acts chapter 5 and verse 36. Simon Bar K- uh, Kokhba, who led another Jewish revolt, claiming to be the Messiah, but he again was defeated. Again, the point here is just to say there are other people apart from Jesus who rose up and claimed then to be the fulfillment of of that Old Testament, that Jewish Messiah. And still, there are many who have, through the centuries of the last days, claimed to be Messiah. You just do a Google search, and it will give you over 40 historical figures, mostly from the 17th century on, who claim to be the Messiah. Probably the more famous one that you're aware of is Jim Jones. You guys remember Jim Jones? And he took his people over to Guyana, and there... Uh, under his direction, they all drank Kool-Aid that was poisoned. And that's where we get the expression, you know, are they drinking the Kool-Aid? all comes from that particular experience. You guys may remember David Koresh, who was the the leader of the Branch Davidian in the 90s. That was all throughout the news during that time, because it went on for a long time. And eventually, um, I think it was the FBI, the ATF, um basically stormed and there was a fire that happened, and, and David Koresh, along with others, died that day. But have you heard about David Shaler? He's a former MI5 agent that would be British the uh, Britain's CIA. He claims to be the Jesus Christ reincarnated, just like Jacques de Molay, who was the leader of the Knights Templar. In his mind, Jesus is reincarnated through various people through the course of history, and he is the present Messiah. And he identifies um, the Ark of the Covenant as, if you translate it from Hebrew into Aramaic, it means the heart of Britain. And so he believes that England is the center of the messianic world, not Jerusalem. Okay? Then there's Alan Miller. He's a former Jehovah's Witness elder, and he claims to be. Christ, and is the leader of, of the Australian-based Divine Truth Movement. His partner, by the way, her name is Mary Luck. She identifies herself as Mary Magdalene. Okay. Now, I just share that with you to say, this is not just something that happened during the days of Christ or around there. There have been people through the years who have come and identified themselves as Jesus Christ, the answer, the coming one. So that's the first group, there's the presence of those people. Secondly, there is social upheaval. Wars and rumors of wars, nation against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. Again, a quick reflection on the history of the world demonstrates that this is and has been true. It was true in the time of Christ when the Romans spread their empire and sought to defend and expand its borders. It's been true through the ages and it's still true today. There are wars and there are rumors of wars. And probably the reason it seems like there are more today is because we have the greater capacity for having information and knowledge. All right, you have a you have a cameraman somewhere in the middle of a of a battle. You're like, wow, I didn't realize this was going on. And now you have Facebook Live. So it's not coming from reporters, it's just coming from common people that are just just taking pictures and video of the things as they're happening. So we have far much more information to keep us up on all these different wars that maybe we would have just read about in a newspaper or not even known about. And when you're in the battle itself, and you look around and you see the devastation that's taking place, it's only natural to think the end of the world is upon us. I mean, maybe a city you grew up in is now under siege and, and there's an army coming and taking it over and, and there's rubble there everywhere and there's people that are in the streets and they're dead. You're like, this is it. This is over. It's natural to think that way. That's how the Russians felt in the Na- Napoleonic Wars. That's how many believers felt in Germany when Hitler took control and unleashed the Second World War. And it may be true that the world as you know it is changing as a result of war but that doesn't mean the world is ending even if it feels like it. so we have these false christs or false teaching you have the social upheaval you also have these natural catastrophes it's so easy to regard natural catastrophes in the same way during the years between Christ's death and the destruction of the temple. There was a terrible earthquake in Laodicea. Mount Vesuvius buried Pompeii. Um, and there was a famine in Rome, a devastating famine in Rome. And these natural catastrophes still plague the world today. I mean, we living in America, we see it on both our shores. If it's not the all, all the storms on the eastern shore, It's the potential of the earthquake on the western shore, right? I mean, there's the possibility of those things. Or in California, it's the fires. But as it's listed here, there's earthquakes, there's fires, there's famines, there's tsunamis, there's tropical storms, there's erupting volcanoes, there's times of bitter cold and times of extreme heat. These have all been present through the years during the last days. So what are we to do with all these worldwide upheavals? How are we to cope? What are we to believe? And so Jesus now gives us some prophetical counsel, I'm calling it. And he gives us four statements to guide us. First of all, he says, don't be led astray. Don't be deceived. Don't get drawn into the, the messages from false teachers or the, this, this panic that, that erupts. Don't get drawn in. Don't be alarmed. Don't get all excited, literally. Don't panic. And don't get caught up in the sensational. It's it's so easy for people when something happens on a a large scale level to to sensationalize it, to to use it for their own benefit. And how how is it that we, we are not deceived? How is it that we're not alarmed? By listening to and trusting the words of Christ. You knew this is what what it was going to be like because it was what Jesus said would happen. And then he goes on and says, this is not the end. He continues and says, these are just the beginnings of the birth pain. So, So please hear this. What Jesus is specifically and emphatically saying is that when you hear of false prophets, wars, and rumors of war, and earthquakes, and famines, don't Think to yourself, the end is coming, the Lord is near. He is specifically saying, don't think that way. The end is not near, is what he says. These are simply birth pains. So stop looking for signs that the end is near. Using a popular sports clothing conglomerate statement, and changing it a little bit, just stop it, is what he's saying. And the problem is the church has been so caught up with watching wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and all these things and trying to come to their conclusion. Oh, look, the Lord's in, the Lord's in. He specifically says here, when these happen, what? It's not the end. (laughs) It's not the end. So stop it. Don't get caught up in it. These are just birth pains. They're just birth pains. Instead, what should we do? Well, we should do what JD walked us through in 1 Thessalonians 4 11 through 12 that says we are to aspire to live quietly and to mind our own affairs and to work with our hands and to walk properly before outsiders and and be dependent on no one. We are to be people who are living out the gospel as God has called us to in a way that would honor him, not to be all panicked. Now, certainly we are to be on our guard or to not be deceived or to be aware. That's all part of the, the paradigm here, but we're not to be sucked in and so caught up with sensationalism that we're panicking and saying, the end is near. The point of Mark 13, and we'll see it a little bit later, is you don't know when the Lord is going to return. Not only do you not know it, Jesus says, I don't know it. And the disciples don't know it. So stop worrying about it, except for the fact you know it's going to happen. And while you're waiting for the Lord to return, live your life in a way that pleases me. So believe what Jesus says later in this prophecy. Secondly, not only is this, there's this general worldwide instability, there are these personal religious persecutions. We move from this general upheaval to this deliberate and personal religious persecution. Jesus now tells the disciples that they won't merely be spectators during the last days. They will be active participants. Verse 9, we'll read through verse 11. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to the nations, or to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now, this idea of delivering over, it's a a strong word. It has the idea of betrayal. And it has the idea of of turning against someone to the point that you would betray. And it will happen to Jesus. It will happen to the disciples. And it also happens to the church over and over and over again through the last days. But in this context, it also speaks of handing over in an unjust way or for unjust reasons. Maybe the only reason you're being handed over is because you are a follower of Christ and nothing more. So there are three arenas that he brings to our attention. The three arenas basically are, first of all, persecution from the outside. And notice what he says here There's, there are going to be civil areas. There'll be the the councils or the courts, and you're going to be delivered over unjustly. There's going to be the religious system, synagogues in particular, and there's going to be this, this religious hatred towards you. And there's going to be this political arena um, where you're standing before governors and kings, again, defending yourself against the unjust accusations that are brought against you. Now, just think through this. The, the civil aspect of our, of our society, the religious aspect and the political aspect, are supposed to be the pillars of society, where justice and fairness are promised. They are the very places where all citizens should find safety and security, unless you're a Christian. That's what he's saying. In fact, because you're a Christian, you are not going to be treated the same way, and I just in a contemporary way. Let me just say it this way: refuse to bake a cake because of conscience' sake, and you will be vilified, and laws will be created to put you in your place. Break the law by running naked on the streets of San Francisco, and you will be applauded for your freedom of expression. Just think about that. This is the kind of perverseness that's going on in society. The word perverse means completely twisted upside down. This is the thinking. This is the culture. But we should not be surprised. That's what Jesus is saying. This is the kind of world that you are going to live in during these last days. The injustice that Jesus is talking about is not because Christians are behaving badly. When Christians behave badly, they should have to account for the way they're behaving. Okay? But They're being treated this way because they are behaving in accordance with God's will. They're doing good to those around them. They're they're treating others with gentleness and respect. They're they're sharing the good news of the gospel. They're standing firm on the truth of God's word. And they will be treated unjustly. All of these persecutions are laid out out for us in the book of Acts. And these kinds of persecutions will, will continue. All over the world until the Lord returns. So the first area then is this general persecution from the outside. Secondly, there's this persecution from family. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. So brother against brother. Parents against children. Children against parents. These are the kinds of things that we saw taking place in Europe during the reign of Hitler under this Nazi regime. These are the kinds of behaviors that also took place under Lenin and Stalin. Those who were followers of communism, you would root out those people and you would actually lean on family members to turn other family members in. This is the kind of stuff that would take place. And it continues to take place in different places around the world. But then there's also persecution as he ends this this little section. He says in verse 13, and you will be hated by all for my namesake why such hatred why such injustice why such persecutions how can people so close to each other turn on one another even to the point of death a child turning over their parent knowing that that parent then would would suffer death it's because you're christian it's because you identify with Christ. What do the scriptures tell us? John fifteen eighteen through nineteen. The reason the world hates you is because it hates Jesus. And Satan, who is the god of this world, will do all he can to eradicate all who are followers of Christ. Now Jesus is speaking to the disciples, and some of this is factual. Some of this is church tradition here, but just listen about all the different ways these disciples. Died. James was beheaded by King Herod. Peter, crucified upside down in Rome. Andrew, crucified on an olive tree. Thomas, thrust through with pine spears, tormented with red hot plates and burned alive. Philip, tortured and crucified. Matthew, beheaded. Nathaniel, skinned alive, then crucified. James the less thrown down from the Temple Mount and then beaten to death with the club. Simon the zealot was crucified. Thaddeus is beaten to death with sticks. Matthias stoned while hanging on a cross. John the Beloved, the author of the Gospel of John, thrown into boiling oil but did not die. He was exiled to the prison island of Patmos and Paul was beheaded in Rome. See, the attitude and the behavior of the world opposed to Christ it con- uh, continues to hate uh, followers of Christ since that time, and it continues even to this day. Now, you and I may not experience it personally because we're living here in America, but you can go to other places around the world, and boy, you show yourself to be a Christian, and you're going to be in a difficult situation. So what is the prophetic counsel? How does Jesus now speak to this issue of persecution? How are we to respond to this ongoing persecution during the last days? Are we just going to be a church that, that hibernates and goes underground? Are we going to be a church that simply dissolves out of fear of more persecution? See, here in the West, we have experienced a season of unprecedented prosperity and peace as it relates to the church age as we know it, or the last days as we know it. We become accustomed to decency and comfortable living and civil discourse and the comfort of the rule of law, things that our country is built on. For the church in the West, suffering is abnormal. We tend to see comfort and peace as the normal. Hey, if you are a follower of Christ, everything's going to be okay. Okay. That's the lie we tell people. But that is not how it works for Christians around the world, is it? For example, if you announce your conversion from Islam to Christianity in a Muslim country, your words could take on a terrible reality, likely ending with your death. If you announce your Christian status in a hardline communist country, you will face extreme hardship and suffering. And some of you remember the the, the, the testimony in the book in the movie by Richard Warmbrand, tortured for Christ. This is just the reality of it, friends. We must remember the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 and following, where he says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but, but a sword, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. What Jesus is saying now in Mark 13 is consistent with what he was saying to the disciples back then. And it's all because you are a follower of Christ. This is who you are. I mean, are you a little nervous right now? This is what you are called to. But we're in America. (laughs) Our suffering is not much at all compared to the rest of the world, and compared to the rest of the last day. Notice how Jesus brings the two themes of of testing and testimony together. He says to us, your testing through persecution is a vehicle to bring about your testimony with and among people, and in places you wouldn't normally have the opportunity to speak about the gospel in the courts, in the synagogues, and before rulers and kings. The gospel will reach all sorts of people. Hear this. When people won't come to find God, God will bring us to them. When people won't come to find God, God will bring about some circumstance in his people so that those who are his will stand in a place to be able to give testimony about the good news of the gospel in an arena that they would never be otherwise. And that's all part of the sovereign purposes of God, even to those who are wicked. Isn't this what we see in the in the Acts of the Apostle? Uh, The the gospel is preached in chorus. Just, Just think about this. In Acts 22 and 23, Paul preaches the gospel before the council. In Acts 24, Paul preaches the gospel before Felix. In chapter 26, he preaches the gospel before Agrippa. And they're all pagan and cruel men, but God sees to it that they hear the gospel. Now, specifically, he says three things to us. First of all, he says the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. In other words, the way forward with the gospel into all nations is by traveling the road of testing and persecution. Now, That's not the message we want to (laughs) hear. That's not the mission strategy that we want to adopt. Hey, J.D. and Thea, just so you know this, your ability to get the gospel out when you go to Austria is by way of persecution. Have fun. We're going to be praying for you. That's not how we typically have done missions. Because how we do missions is typically say we need to get the gospel, so we'll come up with our own strategies and plans and and good ways to kind of connect the gospel to where we're going. And it's all actually good. It's all actually right. But God has His divine plan. And His divine mission's plan is by virtue of suffering and persecution where the gospel now is preached and proclaimed to people that would would not normally listen to it or hear it. So what this text is reminding us of is that Christianity will spread as the church is persecuted. The gospel will go forward in persecution. Our mission strategies may be good, they may be right, but God's mission strategy is always best. Testimony comes by way of traveling the road of testing. So when you're tested in a small way, someone does something to you, and your American Western righteousness rises up and says, they shouldn't do that. I'm the customer. Blah, 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 blah. Maybe you need to step back, preach the gospel to yourself a little bit, and remind yourself that you are actually in a place where you have the opportunity to testify and to speak kindly and to deliver a message of grace where the good news of the gospel is proclaimed. That person on the phone you talk to because they're trying to help you with that card and that, that, that amount that got wrong and they posted the wrong amount, and you get angry with them because I want to talk to your supervisor. Or maybe you could be on the phone and say, you know what? Hey, thank you for helping me out. I know this is a real mess and it's a pain, but you know, I'm thankful that my life isn't dependent on all this because I have I have a great God and Savior who's ordering it all. But thank you for being a part of this and helping me out so that I can get to the end. Can you imagine all the kind of messages those people listen to? And here comes someone who's being kind and gracious, has a perspective, has an awareness, and they might be saying to themselves, you know what? (laughs) I really appreciate that person's attitude. I'm just saying, there's a scenario that we just think, our our American righteousness, we're going to get this thing done because I'm the customer. Wait a second. You are a child of God first. We are to live our lives in light of the fact that we are his children. And what little things we think are really important. Do not compare to the kind of suffering and persecution that Christians have had through the ages. Secondly, don't be anxious. The Holy Spirit will speak. I love this. You and I may find ourselves in places we would not expect to be because we are simply followers of Christ. And the promise to us is that we should not be anxious. Now, if I were to call some of you up here today, right now, come up and share your testimony, some of you would be like, I can't stand in front of people. I can't speak. And if I called you up here, some of you might even run out of the auditorium. You're so full of fear. But he's not talking about speaking in the context of the church, where it should be comfortable, where people are supporting you and encouraging you. He's talking about speaking in the domain of opposition, the domain of darkness. And in that context, when you've been treated unjustly and you come and stand before these people, he promises that the Holy Spirit will speak through us. Now, that doesn't mean we don't think. It doesn't mean we don't have any reservoir of, of things that God has taught us. It means in that moment, God has placed you. Trust that he's with you. Speak the truth kindly, graciously, generously boldly and clearly. Now isn't that what Martin Luther did when he was brought before the council in worms to defend his his gospel writings? And he said calmly but boldly, unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the Pope's and counsels for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and and I will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me, amen. I don't think he was screaming at him. I don't think that he was angry and kind of like in a sinful way. I think he saw this as an opportunity that the only thing he had to rest on was the Word of God and the reason that interacts with that Word of God. Same kind of thing happens across the world. A number of years ago, I would do ministry in, in a place called Ufa, Bashkortostan, which is in Russia. And um, there was a, a lady there by her, by the name of Natalia Slobodan. She was the head of the children's ministry there. And... Um, every once in a while, every summer, they would have a children's camp. In fact, the church I was pastoring at that point in time, we would send, uh, for a couple years, we sent teams to help out with that camp. In fact, if you want to ask anyone about it, Betty uh, McDaniel was part of that, and um, uh, it was just a, a great ministry to kids in the city, and these are not necessarily Christian kids. These are just kids from the city who are whose parents say, yeah, go ahead, take him for a week. And they they would take him out there, do all sorts of fun things with them, but they would share the gospel. And the whole time, there was always the equivalent of the KGB there, watching and looking and seeing. And sometimes they would come in, they would interview the people, the people that were in leadership there. And sometimes they would interview the Americans that were there. But Natalia eventually, a few years later, was brought before the judge on charges that they were going to close down any children's ministry endeavor. And I was you know, told through the grapevine, so to speak, of people that were there, that she went and stood before the judge and she did not stand down. She stood tall and with passion, she shared about the, the wonderful things that the children's ministry has done for street children and for children whose parents had abandoned them and that, that these people that are the believers are, are sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And as she spoke and when she was done, The judge dismissed the case. She stood tall. She proclaimed the gospel in the context of what she was doing in ministry. And friends, that's the kind of thing that God is calling us to, is in that time, in that that time of distress, is to proclaim, is to speak and to trust God that he's going to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. But it doesn't always work out the way we want it. Sometimes you proclaim and the, the judge hears and you're thrown into jail. You don't measure the effectiveness of your faithfulness based on where you end up. You measure it based on your willingness to stand true for God by what you say in that moment. And that's why he finishes up here and he says, enduring to the end. Persecution, proclamation, endurance. Now, this is what genuine followers of Christ do. They endure persecution. They face injustice. They see the hand of God in their tribulation. They take the long view rather than the immediate suffering. Now, this is not saying that if you have a, a moment of weakness in this trial and difficulty that that somehow you're not a Christian. That's not the point here. He's saying here the, the weather vane of your, your of, of the evidence of your but you're following Christ is that you will be facing hardship, even in sinful, uh, even though you may be sinful at, at times, but you will fight to face the hardship because of Christ. Suffering and persecution is not easy, it's not easy for believers, and we will fail at times, but that doesn't mean we've lost our salvation, but the evidence of our salvation will be that we will find remorse and sadness that we did not, and we want to, and so we, we get back up and we, we keep plugging along. So we have these two arenas, these, these worldwide kind of um, events. We have this this persecution that comes in a personal way because of our stance with Christ. And then there's this specific birth pain. So here we now have a, a specific pain that, that Jesus now is going to be f- focusing on and, and dwelling on here. Verse 14, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, Let the reader understand. So first of all, I want you to notice that we have here a sign. I want to use that word. This is the only time really where Jesus now is beginning to answer specifically what they are to look for as it relates to the destruction of the temple. That expression, the abomination of desolation, literally means the abomination that brings about desolation. So the of there has the idea of, of it produces this desolation. So what this abomination that brings about desolations is, uh, is it's an expression that comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 9 and verse 27, but also in chapter 11, verse 31. And so Jesus now is basically commenting on the fulfillment of that taking place. And that's where he says, let the reader understand. He's referring now to Daniel's prophecy and saying, now understand what this means. So it describes in in Daniel's prophecy a coming figure who would desecrate the temple and abolish the daily sacrifices there. It means an abomination so desolate or detestable it would cause the temple to be abandoned by the people of God and provoke desolation or destruction. Now there's a number of characters that can be brought to our attention that I think would be uh, fulfillments of that. I think, first of all, we would consider Antiochus, Epiphanes in 167 BC, um, he is the, the Seleucid king who conquered Jerusalem and attempted to Hellenize the people, forbidding them to circumcise their children or even to offer Levitical sacrifices. In fact, he forced them to sacrifice swine on the altar, okay? And according to the historical record of the book of Maccabees, he erected a statue of Zeus on the altar Of burnt offering. So, this abomination caused the Jews to abandon the temple until the successful revolt under Judas Maccabeus took place. So, some think that is actually when this abomination took place, or this is what the fulfillment is. Another leader, just after Christ leaves the scene, is the insane emperor by the name of Caligula in AD 40. And he came and he thought of himself as. God, and that's why he, he he's called insane because of the things he did, but he attempted to have an image of himself put in the temple, but he also allowed criminals into the Holy of Holies for the purpose of committing murder, and he turned the temple into this kind of this playground of, uh, of kind of like a circus playground, and a lot of sexual stuff that happened in that context. So, I mean, the purpose of the temple was just totally... Desecrated. You get that? That's the point here. Now, re- that's the recent history then of, of, of Jesus' life. It was right after that. But in AD 70, we have, the, uh, we have the, the Roman general Titus. And so uh, it is generally understood um, that it is Titus then that is the fulfillment then of this, this statement that Jesus is making here. Because there was this destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem. At the hands of Titus. Now, in, in Luke's parallel account, this is what he says, verse 20 of, uh, of chapter 21. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. And that's what happened. They were surrounded by this wall of steel. Now, this destruction of the temple is still future when Jesus is saying these words to the disciples. It is still future when those who are reading this gospel account in Rome are reading it. It's probably somewhere in the the region of 64 to 68 BC. Of course, in AD 70 is when the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed. So it will involve Jerusalem be surrounded by armies, the desolation in the temple, and it will bring about what Jesus had just prophesied in verse 2, where it says, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So friends, it's it's pointing here to this destruction of the temple. Now, what is the counsel that he gives here? What is the, the action that he wants then believers to Uh, to follow. Sorry, I didn't have those up there. When you see the sign, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to flee, is what he says. So let's read that. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who was on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who was in the field not turn back to take his cloak. and, cloak and, And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. So this is a call for the disciples and his followers to pay attention to his words of warning, counsel, guidance, and to flee. Judgment is coming on Jerusalem. In fact, they would see the beginnings of the the workings of judgment. Uh, it, wouldn't, it wasn't like like Titus just all of a sudden appeared one day. This was a process of time when there was some political unrest, and 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 you could they could see that things were happening, and that there was this movement. And they weren't to, to, to waste any time. They weren't to, to leave, or they were to leave all their goods at home. They weren't to go back and get a jacket or, or some kind of a coat. They're, they're, they're to flee because judgment was coming. Now, the point of Jesus speaking about pregnant women and that kind of stuff is to stress the urgency of all of this and to listen and to look and to be ready to flee because judgment is coming. The fourth-century historian Eusebius records these words. The people of the church in Jerusalem were commanded by an oracle given by revelation before the war to those in the city to depart and to dwell in one of the cities of Perea, which they called Pella. To it, those who believed on Christ migrated from Jerusalem, that when the holy man had altogether deserted the royal capital of the Jews and the whole land of Judea, the judgment of God might at last overtake them for all their crimes against the Christ and his apostles and all that generation of the wicked Utterly blotted out from among them. So, in other words, there was this remembrance of Jesus' words that motivated the Christians to be aware and to see it coming, and they left. Now, one of the things we have to understand is when Titus and his army surrounded the city, they came in and they utterly destroyed everyone in that city. But there was a siege going on during that time. The Christians, they fled to the mountains. The Jews, fled to the temple they sought to find refuge there but jesus says don't flee to the temple flee to the mountains away from the temple this is where you'll find refuge and so we move on here not only is there some instruction here to flee but there's also some comfort and it's comfort where we see this this tension between judgment and grace Verse 18, here's the judgment. Pray that it may not happen in winter, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. Now, quite frankly, this is a really, really difficult passage to interpret because it seems very clear like this is like the only ever last, worst, biggest thing. But in apocalyptic language, often hyperbole is used to to create this effect And it doesn't necessarily mean the desolation on some kind of extent, but even the intensity of that desecration or that that life or the suffering is presently there. Josephus would recognize this hyperbole. Uh, Gill, Spurgeon, all those theologians would agree on this. The historian Josephus gives us a picture of the harshness of this judgment. He said, the roofs were thronged with famished women, with babes in arms, And the alleys with corpses of the elderly, children and young people swollen from starvation, roamed like phantoms throughout the marketplaces and collapsed wherever their doom overtook them. We're told they were literally ripping each other apart, stealing fruit from uh, from each other. Even mothers whose babies had died were, were boiling them in water so that they could have something to eat. I mean, the the despair of mankind to go through that kind of suffering, friends, is truly horrific. It's terrible. But that's judgment. But there's also grace, verse 20, And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Now, again, this is difficult. But in, in, in the whole idea, God had as his focus, his own people, his elect. And as the the armies of Titus surrounded the city of Jerusalem and the Christians fled to the mountains, in particular into Pella, they escaped the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Their flight, however, was not defeatism. Their flight was belief In the prophecy of Christ, their flight was to abandon what was no longer central to the religious order. Christ had come. He was the Messiah. He had been rejected by the unbelief of the Jews. He had been found guilty. He had been mocked and scorned and manipulated by the religious establishment. He had been crucified by both Jew and Gentile. So Jesus now takes the expression that once was uniquely for Israel and he brings it now to be an expression of this new creation called the church, the elect, which included both Jew and Gentile. So although the great tribulation, suffering, and abomination took place in Jerusalem and the temple, the extent of the suffering was cut short. The Christians in the hills would come out of this time of tribulation to spread the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The elect were spared to serve. And we would see not only them but also the apostles and the spreading of the gospel that was already taking place continue on now through these believers. So we have this specific, painful, birth pain. I, I I've never been pregnant, although some people do ask me when I'm going to give birth. But that's a whole other thing, right? Um, and I've not gone through birth pains, but I've I've watched my wife, and I, I've heard sounds. Um, I know it's not a fun thing. Um, And some birth pains are more painful than others. And so all these characteristics are birth pains, but Jesus refers specifically to one here. And now he moves back again into another general category that references the the rest of that that, um, period we call the, the last days, verse 21. And if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ. Or look, here he is, do not believe him, for false Christs and false prophets arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. Just, Just want to highlight this quickly. The false Christs and prophets, first of all, they they, they claim to be Messiah, they point to Scripture, they perform signs and wonders, but they lead people astray. False Christs and false prophets love to use the word of God, don't they? Let me just let me just paint a picture here, all right? Both of our presidential candidates in the last campaign used the Word of God <laughs> to accomplish their purposes. Well, it, when it comes when it comes to that kind of leadership, using the Bible to support your cause is often something that happens. So, just the fact that someone claims to be Messiah, or points to Scripture, or even performs science does not necessarily mean that they are actually the truth, speaking the truth. Now, here's the point to consider. False Christs and false prophets are deceptive and will trick or convince people that the lies they speak are the truth. They don't come with warning labels. There's not like a, a warning label from the U.S. government that says, the U.S. government warning, listen to this false prophet at your own peril. They are spewing lies and deception in order to lead you astray. The whole point is, You don't know that they are leading you astray. You don't know that what they're saying is false unless what? Unless you have embraced the truth of Christ. Unless the word of God is something that you understand and that you know. Because false teachers and false Christs know how to manipulate They know how to turn your your words or the words of the Bible to mean something completely different than what it's saying. But you may be convinced otherwise. We need to listen to the words of Christ. Remember them and live by them. And that's why he says, be on your guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. But then there's the true Christ. He's the true prophet. He claims to be the Christ, and he was. He pointed to Scripture, which he clearly fulfills. He performed multiple miracles and healings, etc., to authenticate his message ultimately to lead people in the truth. He is the true Messiah. No other person who claims to be the Messiah could do what Jesus did that's recorded for us in Luke 24 and sit down or walk with the the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus and say, here's where the Messiah is. Here's where I am in the Old Testament. Here I am in the Old Testament. Here I am in the Old Testament. Here I am in the Old Testament. And say, I am the fulfillment of this. They can't do it. But Jesus can because he is that true Messiah. So what makes a true prophet? Haven't I told you all these things beforehand, he says. If you have ears to listen, you will see that all that Jesus said is true. This temple, he says, will be destroyed and I will make it rise up in three days. I will go to Jerusalem, be mocked, and be crucified and rise again. The temple and Jerusalem will be destroyed, bringing about the end of Judaism. My words are true. I am the true prophet, so don't be deceived. Believe in me. And those things that he said would happen, did happen. His body was destroyed. He rose again the third day. He went to Jerusalem, went through that whole passion scene, was crucified, he rose again. The evidence was there. They all were able to see it. And so now as... The disciples looked ahead, and as they even experienced the the, the news of the the destruction of Jerusalem, they are reminded, I'm sure, again, that Jesus is the true prophet. Now, I just want to bring this to a close with four, I think, statements that flow out of this text. There's probably more that could be said, um, but I want to um, just kind of think through these as we close. Number one when there's chaos and instability on the earth, remember that there is always control and stability in heaven. Friends, just put that into your heart. When there is chaos and instability on the earth, remember that there is always, 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 always control and stability in heaven. And what does that do for us? It gives us a, a fresh awareness. It gives us confidence. It gives us certainty that can only be realized when we see the God of the Bible for who he is. That's why this morning when we sang these songs about the character of God, those reminders are so helpful for us. Why? Because we, we seek to understand God for who He is. He is a God who knows. He is a God who is sovereign. He's a God who is aware. He's unmoved by the affairs of the earth. He's in total and complete control over all of His creation. And He reigns supremely. So your chaos and your instability, it's real. It's happening. But God isn't up, up in heaven going, oh, what am I going to do? How am, I going to, how am I going to react? How am I going to... I? Not at all. God is in complete control. Secondly, the judgment of God on those who rejected him in Jerusalem is a picture of the judgment of all who reject him in the final day. I wonder whether or not we realize ultimately what it means to reject Christ. I know from from a gospel ministry perspective, we want people to come to know Lord Jesus Christ. We share the gospel, and hey, you know, hey, whatever you want, you know, if you, if you don't want to embrace Christ, if you, you know, if this is offense to you, whatever, that's fine. Do we understand the end result of those who reject Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior? Judgment is coming. It is real and everyone who goes through that judgment will be guilty and will be judged justly and Jesus is reminding us here that any man made religion is a rejection of him because he has clearly said I am the way the truth and the life here's the exclusive sa- sentence or statement no one comes to the father except through me. That's so exclusive. Yep. And you better believe it. Because if you don't, judgment is coming. That's so judgmental. No, it's not judgmental. That's truth. God will judge you, and he will judge you fairly based on your rejection of him. Third, The mission of the church, the mission of the church during the time of birth pains is to see every opportunity as an opportunity to believe, live out, and share the gospel. So don't get angry. Don't get caught up in the conflict. Endure the suffering, the trial, the persecution, knowing that God has called you to be a light in this world. Always be asking yourself, why is God having me go through this right now? And we've got our own little worlds that maybe we haven't interacted with God about, our own agendas that we want to accomplish. But what is God doing here having me go through this right now? Secondly, how can I be a vehicle to spread the good news of the gospel even in this trial? See, friends, the mission of the church, as God allows you to go through certain things, is very personal. He works through people, not just movements. He works through people, individuals. And you get to speak in certain situations. You get to interact with people in certain situations where I could never do that. Before we started Gateway, I was not in ministry for a couple of years. And during that time, I worked for FedEx for a few months. And every night, I would find myself in a Metal can loading boxes with another person. Usually for about three hours. And we would have conversations. And I would let them create the conversations because eventually it's going to get to religion and it's going to get to, in my case, you know, so what do you do? You know, where are you from? You know. And there's part of my life that I really enjoyed them because it put me in places where I could share the gospel that I could never do now as a pastor. You can't because you're living out your life in the world that God has given you you're in your places of work and ministry and what are you doing to continue to share that good news in that place And finally, friends, this is so important. For the believer, the Lord's return is something we anticipate with joy. It is our hope. It is our Blessed hope, Scripture says. When the birth pains are over, there is joy as the baby is born. And all that pain just seems to to disappear. The trials, the suffering, the worldwide squabble and conflicts will all pale in comparison with the joy of the church when Jesus the Christ, the groom, will be reunited with his church. Just like the old... Song sums it up. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. These are the last days. The Lord's returning. We don't know exactly when. We have the confidence of his return. And we're certain about that. But we also need to be certain about how he wants us to live in these characteristics that will be true in these last days. To live for his glory, anticipating his coming. Lord, help us today. To just to allow the truth of this passage to settle in us. Again, Lord, we can be so consumed with charts and diagrams and schemes and, and ways that we think things are going to unfold. And all those things are important, Lord, but help us to see what you want us to see, that, that you want us to live our lives in the context of this world where much of it is, is persecution and suffering, where there is... Injustice in particular toward, unbel- uh, toward believers by a, a, a generation or by people who think they are doing what is right would help us to see those opportunities, those circumstances we find ourselves in, those, those difficult spots, as opportunities, Lord, to, to, to bring a measure of testimony about the good news of the gospel Help us to to have that mindset. Lord, suffering is hard. We can be in pain. It can be physically daunting. It can be emotionally taxing. And yet at the same time, Lord, you call us to trust you, to live our lives for you, and to be the light of the gospel while we're here on this earth. Lord, we all together as your church look forward to, with joy, your return, to be reunited with you. Help us now, Lord, to take these truths and to live them out for your glory.